Hey y'all, you know we're a nonprofit, right? That means we rely on donations from listeners to keep this podcast going. So if you have a couple of dollars to spare because every dollar counts, please consider giving at patreon.com slash femfreak. Also fun fact, in addition to the perks that you'll get as a Patreon subscriber, your donations and contributions on Patreon are also tax deductible because we're a 501c3. So if you want to learn more, if you want to give, please head over to patreon.com slash femfreak. Although the Hayes Code did succeed in kind of creating a fake national morality that was a lot more middle of the road than the coastal um, entertainment cultures, it couldn't completely heal the breach between North and South around representations of race. Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian, and this season of the podcast, along with my co-host, Kat Spada, we're using each episode to take a look at the history of Hollywood through the decades. Ray Daniels. What the hell is going on here? Are you going to take Johnny away from me? Take a nap, because you're going to need all your energy tonight. Silly boy. Today, we're joined by Patricia White, Centennial Professor of Film and Media Studies and Coordinator of Gender and Sexuality Studies at Swarthmore College. Man, academics have the longest titles. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Patricia's books include a study of Hitchcock's Rebecca in the BFI Film Classic series, Women's Cinema, World Cinema, Projecting Contemporary Feminisms, and Uninvited, Classical Hollywood Cinema and Lesbian Representability. Everyone does that, Anita. (laughs) It's a lot. It's a mouthful. I learned to be more succinct in my titles as I matured. (laughs) Patricia is on the board of directors of Women Make Movies and a member of the editorial collective of the Feminist Journal of Media and Culture, Camera Obscura. And she's going to usher us through Hollywood in the 1930s, a decade marked by economic hardship and the rise of fascism, and with a film landscape remembered for classic monster movies like Frankenstein, blockbuster epics like Gone with the Wind, and technicolor fantasies like The Wizard of Oz. Patricia. Hi, Patricia. Hi. (laughs) Thank you for having me. And I want to say that I'm here to um, love the movies that I'm critical of. (laughs) Yes. That's our favorite part. So I, first of all, I have a question from looking at your bio. I saw that you got your PhD in the history of consciousness. (laughs) And I'm very curious what that means. The History of Consciousness program is at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and it's, you know, a little bit uh, woo-woo because it's Santa Cruz, Um, but it actually started in the 60s. It's sort of the legacy of um, the kind of radical work of Herbert Marcuse and Norman O. Brown, Um, and the program came together around scholars doing work um, cross-disciplinarily, and at the time that I went there, they had recently hired um, Teresa de Laredes, who was a feminist film theorist and semiotician. Um, and she was going to join Donna Haraway, famous for her 
cyborg manifesto essay um, and other scholars, Hayden White um, in the program. So I sort of followed her there and did my work in this context that only got better because Angela Davis then joined the program. Mm. Um, and it had its heyday. It's still still happening. Um, but there at the time, it was just these um, really incredible senior scholars. And it um, has over the years, you know, found out had to figure out ways to sort of reproduce that magic. Um, so yeah, I was I was really interested in film and feminist theory, and they kind of bloomed together in that program. Nice. I uh, almost applied to that program. I was on my short list of because you know when you're like doing really well in school and you're like got to you get to hang out with all these people and think all these big thinky thoughts. You're like, I'm just going to be in school forever. <laughs> Why not go to the history of consciousness? So then I went to uh, social and political thought, which is equally as obscure in Stanford? and useless, yeah. really. No, oh. no, no, no. God, no. I, I went to York. Oh, York. Yeah, Toronto. yeah. Well, still such a but great program it, there. Yeah. It's another one of those like, this doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> you just kind of come in and make your own program to some degree. So I think it was at yeah. a moment when theory was really, you know, the word in the humanities. Mm. And, and it was right because it was kind of, you know, transgressing disciplinary boundaries. But it also had a little bit of a, um, uh, you know, scared off some people. It was a little elitist to be like, we do theory um, and that was part of what I think. Yeah, sure. And, you know, there's a lot of like radical leftist thought in a lot of these spaces that were was obviously very appealing to me and others. Yeah. But um, yeah, well, so, okay, we're here to talk about the 30s, which is a fascinating time in, uh, in Hollywood. Um, so can you tell us about what's going on? Like it's, you know, people say it's the golden age. What does that even mean? Like people talk about the studio system, but like, we still have studios. So how was it different then? And I think maybe the biggest question um, is how the Hayes Code uh, and what the Hayes Code is and how that interfered with all of this. Right. Well, the 30s um, was a heyday um, for, um, you know, cinema going and for the uh, kind of organization of the industry in Hollywood in a really stable way. The studios um, had their own stable of stars. They had their own, um, you know, sound stages and production facilities. They had their own theaters. Um, so they were really um, vertically integrated, as the uh, language goes for the for mm. the for the antitrust people that would come later. This was really the case already in the twenties, and um, and the star system was, you know, really going. Production was centered in Southern California, but the difference between the 30s and the 20s was sound. Uh, the um, and a lot of the economic um, fallout from World War One and uh, in that affected international film production and um, and the distribution of Hollywood films. So there was a lot of kind of bumpy transition right at the end of the 20s. Uh, but Hollywood sort of landed on its feet by rapidly incorporating sound and um, making new stars um, in the new medium, some of them singing stars, some of them, um, you know, risque European ones that kind of made up for the uh, kind of hit that European film industries took uh, during this period of economic uh you know, it's uh, chaos really um, everywhere. So the U.S. is in the depression, but in the beginning of the 30s is able to kind of make 
the Hollywood dream factory kind of absorb <laughs> um, all of the anxiety about upward mobility by making movies about it and getting people to come every week. So you referred to the Hayes Code, and this is uh, written by William Hayes, who was a postmaster general at one point, um, or it's overseen by him. And it's really part of the industry's effort not to be um, uh, regulated by the government. Um, in, in So in many ways, economically, um, and here in terms of, of uh, free speech, um, mm. the movies weren't actually considered protected speech. They could be, uh, you know, uh, targeted for influencing people unduly for um, any number of things. And uh, the industry was really eager to keep that in-house, to keep the regulation in-house. So they came up with a code, which was largely drafted by Catholics. Um, and they agreed that they would abide by it. For the first four years of the 1930s, they barely did. They, you know, they gave lip service to um, complying with this list of do's and don'ts and things that could not be represented and things that we're like familiar with today, like, you know, no images of toilets or <laughs> married mm. couples sleep in separate beds. Um, and I guess overall, the idea that no images of toilets, yeah, no pictures of <laughs> really? toilets. Well, that was one of the. Th I don't know that it's said that exactly explicitly, but they did have to send pictures <laughs> of um, sets to um, to the off to the production code administration, which was instituted by uh, 1934, um, to approve the sort of, you know, décolleté of women's gowns and the, you know, wow. the way that beds were arrayed. Um, and by 1960, when we still have the production code in place, Hitchcock's uh, Psycho, which has a very prominent picture of a toilet <laughs> when, um, when Marion Crane flushes uh, for her like, accounting for the stolen money that she's um, she's taken with her to the Bates Motel. When she flushes that down, there's like this close-up. So that was one of the tacky things that this film did, you know, way ahead in the 1960s. But back in the 30s, um, a lot happened um, with the coming of sound. And as I said, with some of the more um, uh, lenient morals of uh, Europe. So a lot of directors came from Europe and stars came from Europe. And a lot of the films were really full of double entendre or almost explicit about their sexual content. And one of the big um, sort of storylines of the period was that of the gold digger, the woman who, um, mm. you know, was kind of let loose from her middle American life and into the big city to earn her living. And all of a sudden depression comes and she has to find a way to, um, you know, keep, keep, keep afloat and hook, you know, hitches her wagon to some wealthy man. So there are a lot of these kind of gold digger movies um, that were pretty explicit about how um, these women, you know, were kept. Uh, so there was more and more out, cry um, from the moral forces to start enforcing the production code. And then, as I said, by 1934, you have um, um, the code administration and a much more um, regulated process for sending in scripts um, back and forth with the um, 
the censors, uh, Joe Breen was the head of the PCA, about what lines needed to be taken out, um, what outcomes needed to be changed. And the, the, the biggest kind of um, thrust of the production code, no pun intended, was that people had to pay for their um, for their indiscretions, for their transgressions. Mm. So you couldn't, you could have some sympathy for a villain, but by the end, everything had to be put right. So, you know, the, the, the bad guys got their downfall and the good guys were rewarded. And you kind of can't underestimate how much that um, informs a particularly American way of <laughs> being naive and hypocritical about how the world works, right? It's all going to be okay in the end. Um, and that, you know, stayed in place for, for a long time. Um, I, so, I'm so yeah. fascinated by the production code. I like it, it keeps coming up in all of these conversations, partly because it's been around for almost the a huge history of, of Hollywood in general. But when we were in the first episode with Shelley Stamp about the 10s and mm -hmm. 20s, we talked a little bit about the like there's different censorship yeah. bodies in different states and they would regulate totally mm -hmm. differently and have different rules. And so we talked about Lois Weber and how a lot of her films were censored. <clears throat> um, I thought it was interesting because one of her films um, had a massive outcry because there was the naked mm -hmm. truth in in her one of her most popular films, Hypocrites, where the woman is wearing probably wearing a body stocking, but she looks right. naked. And so when we'll get to talking about um, <clears throat> Blonde Venus, but I was like, those women are fully yep. fucking naked. Maybe <laughs> body stockings, who knows, right? Yeah, but it was just really interesting to me about like both how like, kind I mean, fairly quickly culture changes to accept different norms, but also how the Hayes Code, like both was a way to get the industry, to get government off of the industry's mm. back and it caused so much, I feel like it caused a lot of harm to the industry in general in terms of like how stories are told and what stories are told, both in exactly what you're saying of how like the media shapes our understanding of the world. Like I grew up thinking that in the 50s, like couples would sleep in separate beds, even <laughs> right. though my parents didn't. And th not because it's true, but because the media makes things feel true, right? And so how much that is influenced, but also I think the flip side of it is how the constraint created so much creativity in some of the ways that we tell stories or some of the ways that these filmmakers try to insert more, I don't know, subversive uh, aspects to their stories. Absolutely. So, yeah. And I think that's really what's um, so fascinating about the 1930s, which really, you know, there were pretty violent genres. There's gangster films. Um, but there were also a lot of films centered around female stars and aimed toward female audiences, or at least to the concept that the female um, audience decided what movies people would see. So there really was a kind of putting front and center of female glamour and um, and the desirability of these stars for everyone. Uh, so a star like Marlena Dietrich is um, imported from Germany um, and billed as, you know, the, 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 the woman all women want to see, right? And of course mm. it's, you know, she's supposed to be sexy and, and a little bit of a top and she's, you know, kind of a germ being German and uh, very um, 
knowledgeable in, in the ways of the world from her cabaret background, but it's, it's really billed towards female audiences. Um, so her work, um, and you allude to Blonde Venus, which comes out in 1932, um, almost all of her films, six of her films are directed by um, Josef von Sternberg, who comes to Hollywood with her. Um, they were they were master and mistress of um, avoiding the um, uh, sanctions of the code with creative, uh, oblique mm. storytelling and innuendo. So, um, for example, in Blonde Venus, a film in which uh, Marlena Dietrich is uh, is um, very badly behaved. You know, she has extramarital sex. She flirts with women in the cabaret. She goes off on her own and crosses racial lines um, in the in the American South. Um, but all of it's kind of excused because she's doing it for her child. So one of the major frames for female transgression and this popular genre of the fallen woman was that she would have a baby and the baby would, she'd have to sort of sacrifice for the baby. So she would be punished through her sacrifice and ennobled by that sacrifice. So you could still, you know, root for her because she was a mom as well as a sexually transgressive female. And then well, I yeah, think go ahead. it's interesting to me that thinking about the Hayes Code, which I didn't realize lasted as long mm -hmm. as it did, even though I'm familiar with, in on I Dream of Jeannie, they couldn't show belly buttons. Like that sort of thing was definitely still existing, mm -hmm. but I didn't realize how much of a part of the industry it might have been. We still have with the rating system. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can, you can tell pretty much any type of thing. You might just not get passed through the rating right. system. The kind of qualification of certain types of explicit uh, action or imagery. So, uh, for example, in a PG-13 movie, you can say the F word once, but not if it's in a sexual context. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like, it's not that the word itself is what's off limits, it's how it's being mm -hmm. used. Or nudity, it there's different types of nudity. Is it nudity that comes with violence? Is it nudity? Is it sexuality that's queer? Is it sexuality that involves people of color? Like, these things all have different... Um, uh, shades within how the ratings right notoriously govern them. yeah notoriously male and female nudity where you know full frontal yes. male nudity is such a scandal right um, yeah so yeah so you were um, so so the production code in Hollywood is in place until like 1967 it's weakened considerably um, but the year after that 1968 an x-rated film wins best picture um, midnight cowboy so they hadn't settled mm -hmm. into what exactly was you know going to be the 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 line that was drawn after the um, rating system um, and after the code was um, thrown out can we talk a little bit about um, the studio system? Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting that this is a time in which actors and and directors mm -hmm. were like attached to a studio mm -hmm. and they didn't work anywhere mm -hmm. else unless their contract was bought out, right? So today, everybody is sort of a free agent. I mean, you can sign, you know, terms and first 
write a first refusal and all of that. But but it, it seems like a very different energy to be attached to a studio in this way, like being owned by a studio. Right. And that's um, some of the biggest issues in the 1930s, which was like the best pro-labor moment in American history um, mm. with the National Recovery Act and um, FDR's administration. Um, women, uh, other stars, but at the head of them were um, people like Betty Davis were objecting to the contractual um, obligation. Um, she was at Warner Brothers and she didn't want to play in certain films and she was forced to, or she was, um, or she was asked to, you know, work for a different studio. And if she didn't want to do it, she was put on unpaid leave. So it was a very fraught you could be rented out to yeah, other they, studios. So, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. So, yeah. It, so it really was quite like you know bartering in people. I'll give you mm. you know this star for you know for this director. Um, so so that was another. So the studio systems, as I said, were um, really kind of all powerful in the studios. There were five major studios that were kind of all powerful in the 1930s. Um, and then some smaller ones um, that, um, you know, made sort of B movies or tried to um, have a kind of independent uh, production model. And so Samuel Goldwyn or, and eventually uh, David O. Selznick had their own um, production companies, but they really functioned like studios um, with, um, you know, sound stages and the most of the, um, and kind of relationships with regular relationships with writers and stars. So um, just to get back to the Blonde Venus example, um, that movie was made at Paramount. That's where um, Dietrich and von Sternberg landed, partly as a, um, as a counter move to MGM's importing of Greta Garbo. Um, and Garbo had made, had been very successful in the silent period. Um, and uh, Dietrich was launched um, at a moment when they were trying to figure out what to do with sound. So her film um, Blonde Venus was actually filmed in French, English, and German versions. So there was this wow. moment of thinking about, and 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 I think that her cosmopolitan sexuality had something to do with that. Um, but but quickly that became um, unrealistic, and um, she was kind of molded to both, um, you know, carry this European allure and rival Garbo in that, and to somehow be domesticated. So if you look at the film Blonde Venus. You mentioned, Anita, the opening segment where there's these nymphs swimming in a pond in Germany, basically. Um, it's the sort of fairy tale that Marlena Dietrich's character tells her, her little boy about how she met um, uh, his dad, um, a, an American sort of science student. Um, but that opening segment wasn't circulated with the film um, after... Um, the production code came into play. So it could just be kind of lopped off. Um, and, yeah. and, and that, and so I remember seeing the film without that. So I was really shocked to see these like naked ladies swimming in this, you know, Alpine Lake. Um, and then of course there's other sinister dimensions of that, um, which would be like um, Southern exhibitors could cut out um, a, a musical number featuring a black performer um, because they were sort of filmed in order to 
allow for that. The um, the code was that a part of the Hayes code, no, or was that a the Hayes thing? code did have certain regulations around race, um, notably um, prohibiting miscegenation, um, so interracial relationships. And although the Hayes code did succeed in kind of creating a fake national morality um, that was a lot more middle of the road than you know the coastal um, entertainment cultures of. Uh, you know, New York and, and Los Angeles, um, it did, it couldn't completely um, heal or um, uh, the, the breach between, you know, North and South around representations of, of race. So that lasted for a really long time of, you know, just being able to clip out Lena Horne's, you know, musical number. Um, so, but I'm, but in terms of the uh, kind of, studio identities. Uh, each one of the studios had their own um, kind of brand, and some of them were more uh, willing to deal with sort of social problem questions than others. So in some ways, MGM, which was the most powerful, um, really was the most normalizing in its morality. Um, so yeah, you see Andy Hardy and um, played by Mickey Rooney and uh, um, Judy Garland as, you know, his sidekick uh, love interest. And that's like this, you know, really um, generic idea of saccharine, pure morality. So one of the other dimensions of the stability of the studio system and the fact that they had stars under contract was that they used other um, elements of their uh, stable of employees to enforce a certain look. So, for example, um, all of Diedrich's costumes were designed by Travis Banton, and they looked mm. different than the costumes designed for um, Greta Garbo at MGM by Cedric Gibbons. So there was a real um, uh, nurturing of craft, um, and in some ways, the stability of the studio system helped for people like, you know, people in costume or set design. Um, editors, directors to kind of hone their craft and you have very high um, production values because the studios always had money coming in from um, the theaters that they owned um, that they and, and their well, you know, well honed formula for genres and cycles. Um, so that's why it's called the golden age, because you really do have um what the film critic um, Andre Bazin called the genius of the system. It wasn't necessarily mm. an individual genius, although of course there were those, but this kind of well-oiled capitalist machine um, really did make for, um, you know, that other phrase that Hollywood of the period's known as the dream factory. So they, what the Gilded Age did for consolidation of, of, rail industry 50 years prior basically and how there's companies these one one man would just own a dozen companies that were all feeding profits into each mm -hmm. other we have this happening in hollywood 
So I have a few other titles I'm going to want yep. to ask you about, but why don't I just give our listeners a little overview of the two movies that we watched on your recommendation to to give us a touch point into this decade. So we've we've talked about Blonde Venus, which is a 1932 film that I read was based on an original story Marlena Dietrich herself wrote. Mm-hmm. And we also watched 1937's Stella Dallas, starring Barbara Stanwyck and Anne Shirley. In Blonde Venus, Dietrich plays an actress, if you can't hear my air quotes there, and singer who returns to the stage to earn enough money to pay for her sick husband, a scientist suffering from terminal radium poisoning, to seek treatment in Germany. While separated, she takes up with a handsome patron, played by Cary Grant, who sends her, which sends her down a path of ruin and redemption. In Stella Dallas, five years later, we watch the story of a woman who sacrifices her own wants and desires so that her teenage daughter, Laurel, can live a better life among the wealth and society of Stella's ex-husband, who is reunited with his first love, a widow who could offer Laurel class and access beyond her wildest dreams. I took a thousand notes about Blonde Venus and not that many notes about Stella Dallas, although it was, I I mean, I loved Barbara Stanwyck in it. It was beautiful to watch her perform, but, um, but let's, uh, I'm curious, you know, these definitely, as you alluded to, seemed like a bit of a before and after, um, before and after it happened one night, you know, before and after Hollywood was, um, was letting these things be seen. And it's very clear what the ramifications of Stella's immoralities are in the, st- in the film Stella Dallas, 1937. Whereas in 1932, our character of Helen Faraday has the opportunity to kind of rebuild her life by her, uh, according to her own terms, for the most part. Um, but I wanted specifically to ask, maybe we can jump off from here i put those air quotes around actress Mm -hmm. and singer we see her on stage singing she's definitely a performer but it seemed so obvious to me that the reason her husband wouldn't want her to go back to that life is because she was basically an escort Mm -hmm. i mean is that something that i shouldn't have inferred from this movie (laughs) Absolutely not. It's clear. Um, there's a, yeah. a, a dissolve from uh, a moment in the film when it's clear that Helen is going to take up with Cary Grant and let her him kind of be her patron and a check that he writes to her um, mm-hmm. and, you know, that a ostensibly is forwarded to her husband um, for his, you know, his treatment. So the negotiations with the production code tried to downplay a little bit the, um, the, the, the um, explicitness of her being a kept woman. And the solution that von Sternberg came up with, which is visual one, just get rid of all of the, you know, <laughs> um, script that tried to explain it away and just kind of let us infer what that relationship is. So we have this, you know, there's a, there's a check being written and then there's a montage of them doing glamorous things like zooming around on a yacht, uh, (laughs) um, you know, lounging languidly in a beautiful art deco apartment. Um, And yeah, so we do, I, I don't think there's any uh, mistaking that she's um, essentially a high-class prostitute. 
Yeah, there's an oblique threat of uh, maybe he'd want to marry her. That's, <laughs> that seems sort of artificially put in there. <laughs> and and it's interesting because, of course, the chemistry between um, a young um, Cary Grant and Marlena Dietrich is a lot more, you know, compelling than mm. that with her um, husband played by Herbert Marshall. Um, and she's, you know... Um, shown being a house frau at the beginning of the film. I mean, it's a very intensely lit, um, you know, tiny New York apartment with like the bathtub in the kitchen. Um, But you know, she's going to bust out of it by, you know, by the kind of stylization that um, von Sternberg brings to the lighting um, and, you know, her, her, then the way she's shot. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. At the, I, I, I hear you on the chemistry between her and Cary Grant, because at the end when um, she's like, it, it's, it's kind of clear that she's going back to her husband or whatever. You're like, no, why would you do that? I don't understand. <laughs> this is a terrible idea. And I think that just so, just like the beginning of the film is in this set in this weird place, like, um, uh, you know, this, this lake with these, chorus girls um the end of the film it's surreal she's wearing this incredibly glamorous gown and she goes and puts her little baby boy to bed and it's very oneric dreamlike um and it's almost like if she recites this script um (laughs) that you know mom and dad are going to get back together and the and the and the child's you know dream of of his mother will you know be restored but it's not convincing um it's not convincing at all it's really like movie magic um it's this right. you know sort of succumbing to the glamour of marlena dietrich and then the next von sternberg film would kind of pick up on that same fantasy just put it somewhere else yo now she's you know um the Scarlet Empress, um, Catherine the Great, or now she's, you know, um, uh, Shanghai Lily um, in in um, Shanghai Express. So um, it's really the star discourse, and again, costume, lighting, the the way she's styled. The costuming was she looked amazing (laughs) like i feel like this movie is worth watching just for all of the exquisite outfits and honestly i kept being like man i wish i could see the color Mm. like not not that i mind Mm -hmm. the black and white but also in um in uh stella dallas they kept talking about the blues and like the colors of their outfits and i was like i want to see these costumes in full color um one of the the things that i found extremely disorienting was representations of race in both of these movies. Um, Partially because I think contemporary films don't like there's absolutely racism in contemporary films, but it feels different than in these. Um, So I watched Stella Dallas first and just the sort of mammy housekeeper, Mm. uh, black woman character would like, it kind of jarred me out of the story. Mm. Um, And then also in Blonde Venus, you have, um, you have a black bartender who has a really kind of ludicrous stutter. And I was like, is that, I don't know what you're trying to do with mm-hmm. this. Um, and then you have this horrific extended performance of 
black sexualized women in chains and then these like um, kind of like tiki informed sort of savage uh, face masks and, and you're and, and a gorilla like walking around with all of them and you're just it goes on and on and on and you're like holy fuck and then all of a sudden Marlena Dietrich comes out of the gorilla costume it's just it's like a fever dream it's like an extremely racist fever dream and it was extremely very jarring. Um, and then I guess another example too is um, towards the end of Blonde Venus, you have um, a, a woman of color. I think she was a black woman um, helping her, right? Being like, there's this cop on the street. Let me go find out what he wants. And like being her sort of support character. And I, I, yeah. I just, it was, it was hard. It was hard she to has, watch it. She has that black woman and a kind of coded butch like this other woman who's got a child of her own and both of them are very quick to understand you're trying to get away from a husband and i know how to help yeah and i so i um totally understand the shock of seeing these things but i think in some ways the 30s were richer in the ways that they um deconstructed uh, some of the racial imaginary of America than would later be the case when the, you know, um, in the 40s, when the stars who were um, playing these roles um, and were able to kind of put their own um First of all, you know, virtuosity as performers, sometimes if it's dancing or just comic acting like with Hattie McDaniel um, into them. But also um, they at least stood for this other place that was at odds with the white world and the imagination of the 40s when um, the idea of, you know, integrating the military in degrading factories um, was given, you know, lip service, but there wasn't real equality made for movies that were a little more dishonest about um, racial hierarchies. Uh, And again, the racial imaginary. So the hot voodoo sequence that you describe and you describe very well, which is an astonishing um, performance um, by Dietrich is at least about um, racial taboos. Um, it's an equation of the uh, white woman. She's called blonde Venus because race has to be explicitly, is explicitly mm. acknowledged where it isn't in many, many other Hollywood films. She's, you know, what's the, what's the contrast? Um, her, her sexuality is conflated with these fantasies of African and African-American um, sexual promiscuity and potency. Um, and she will later cross-dress. Um, it's obligatory for Dietrich to cross-dress um, after um, the top hat that she wears in uh, Blue Angel and the you know tuxedo that she wears in order to kiss a woman in the audience in Morocco. Um, but before she cross-dresses and transgresses the boundary of male-female, she transgresses the boundary of human beast. Um, and that's kind of kinky mm-hmm. um, as much as it is is, um, you know, shocking. Um, And pointing out that she has these, first of all, this circle of 
chorus girls around her um, in the first number, and then um, women who help her um, as she descends deeper and deeper into poverty when she flees with her son, um, is part of, I think, the queer connotations of Dietrich's performance and persona, um, so that when she ends up in She's either in Galveston or in New Orleans when Hattie McDaniel, who was, you know, already very well established as an actor in Hollywood, um, is her lookout. There is a kind of um, I don't want to go overboard and say that it's equality. It isn't. But there is an intimacy between them and a kind of recognition of their um, outsider status that I think comes across in the performance if you are willing to kind of reconstruct the codes of of the racial imaginary of the 1930s um, that informed the film. As a one-off, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, But I do think that there's something that, you know, the Black maids that were always Mae West's um, confidants in the films of the same period also kind of hinted at this place where there was a less uptight morality, um, more easily transgressed um, homo-hetero boundaries along with racial boundaries. Um, you, you mentioned yeah. the sort of queer connotations. Um, I, I didn't see mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Uh, I was just wondering I if think you, like, Kat, This is you, me like, okay, you, so I wrote this book called Uninvited Classical Hollywood Cinema and Lesbian Representability. And the word is, <laughs> as you notice, hard to say. And the idea was, could you imagine, um, you know, if, if you couldn't represent queerness, what were the conditions for its representability? And one of them would be mise-en-scene like cabarets or the women's boarding house um, mm-hmm. where, or the, or the prostitute um, clip joint where um, Dietrich's hanging out and um, Hattie McDaniels, um, which is in the wrong side of town, um, is in a black neighborhood. Um, all of those kind of very fleeting <laughs> references to outside spaces um, could connote queerness. And I don't think that they were um, necessarily um, uh, written to do that. But my contention is that the worlds that these glamorous stars were inhabiting in 1930s and 1940s films because during the 40s, the audience was perceived as even more female because the men were at war. Um, These worlds are kind of female worlds. And to me, there is some erotic potential. I mean, how can you exclude eroticism when you have a star like Dietrich? Um, Yeah, I think that a big part of what carried me to to seeing the queerness is the star power. So it's like uh, maybe an, a, maybe this is a weird modern analogy, but like Rachel Weisz, who, as far as we know, is a straight woman, I think is like queer coded in a lot of the you know she's been played in queer roles and has this little bit of iconic um, uh, status nowadays. So I know if I'm going to see a Marlena Dietrich movie, I'm going to picture this woman who wears. A top hat and tails. And there were certainly a couple of flirtatious moments at the very least where she, you know, grazes the cheek of one of the of the dancers or 
kind of sidles up to an audience member right after she does the same thing to Cary Grant. Mm-hmm. And that, again, like I couldn't watch this without having who, like the Marlena Dietrich of, of lore in my mind. But and, and of the other movies. So the fact that she kisses a woman in Morocco is very fresh to audiences who then see her in this white tie and tails, um, you know, uh, caressing the Parisian chorus girl who clearly must know a lot about, you know, sexuality. I do think that the cross race and cross class quote unquote queerness or the um, (laughs) incestuous mother daughter queerness that I would say you find in some of these movies is harder to um, just is harder to well convince people of. (laughs) Um, But I kind of think that some of the ways that Hollywood had to um, avoid representing heterosexuality left for a lot more homosociality um, in women's Mm. pictures um, that, you know, I tend to find intriguing. So for example, in Stella Dallas, spoilers, you know, the only way that Stella can not ruin her daughter's life with her um, own um, you know, um, inborn tackiness as a working class person is to give up the daughter to this other woman, um, her husband's former flame, and after the divorce, his new wife. And she does this in the most uh, strange, flirty, weird scene where Um, She pretends that she can't take care of Laurel anymore. And the other woman pretends that she believes her and they get closer and closer on this couch until their, you know, mutual understanding as mothers puts them in this physical proximity that I think is, you know, just, it's kind of lesbian. Um, And it's a transference (laughs) of like, I'm, I'm physically sending my maternal power to you (laughs) right and maternal energy is like the the strongest thing that these women have going with the you know with the prohibitions on sexuality so there's some stuff going on and then she gets into bed like her daughter climbs into bed with her in order to comfort her when she knows that her mom has um heard some you know fancy people making fun of her working class ways um their bond is so um romanticized and um that i think those who the feminist critics who kind of rediscovered Stella Dallas and said, yeah, it looks like a terrible um, message of like, you know, maternal sacrifice, you know, you don't get to have anything of your own. You just kind of fade off into the distance. And, you know, as you, after you launch your daughter into this quite boring middle-class world, um, those feminist critics said, you know what, the the affect, the emotion, the power, the sentiment, the tears, the understanding, the immediacy, the transparency, all of that that's going on between mothers and daughters and mothers about daughters is at least part of a, you know, feminist or, um, uh, yeah, a feminist, um, 
grasp of the immensity and importance of women's relationships to each other. I was thinking about um, class. Both of these films are deeply rooted in class struggle. And I feel like a, a bunch of the films from like the older films that we're watching have a really explicit class yeah. conversations. And we don't have that as much these days. So I think that talking about class in contemporary media is, is pretty mm -hmm. rare um, in, in the same way. And so, I, but I'm also, I don't know if it's just because I'm like um, cherry picking films from the twenties, thirties and forties. Uh, it just feels like the, the big hits are, are more rooted in, in that. And maybe it's because of the depression, maybe it's because of the time, but, but that class was a type of oppression that, um, that films and the mainstream were completely prepared to talk about openly in a way that we struggle to, I think, over the last couple of decades um, in our contemporary time. And so I think there's something really interesting here about the fact that like Stella Dallas is all about this woman who is trying to move up in rank, right? Move up mm -hmm. in class um, and is committed to doing it and then fails, right? Like she just can't be as like she's trying so hard and she just can't be as accepted as she would like to be right well and it seems that these two movies are maybe more in touch with the reality that the audience might have been experiencing during the depression like i i don't think of these types of movies when i casually think of the 30s i think of um you know gone with the wind the big fantasy or footlight parade which is like a busby berkeley spectacle of just ridiculous onstage vaudeville choreography. I love that movie. It's absurd. Um, but these movies, I, th I really thought, oh, this is probably a lot more relatable, even though there's still mm -hmm. uh, caricatures in a, in a lot of ways. But maybe class is a conversation more audience members were willing to engage with in the 30s. I think so. Uh, I, I think your both of your comments are so... Um, important. Uh, the 30s, it depends on the studio, um, but it also was a time when class was discussed um, and because of the Depression, because of um, the New Deal. So even Busby Berkeley escapist numbers, if you look at um, 42nd Street, there's a song called We're in the Money um, that is all about, you know, we're never going to see a bread line again. And then at the end of mm -hmm. the um, number, the Broadway show that they're trying to put on gets shut down because they don't have enough money. So Warner Brothers, where those musicals were made, was really the more um, class conscious. Um, and I think that this gets less notable in the 1940s. But you also have stars like Joan Crawford and Barbara Stanwyck who carry their working class background into, um, you know, sometimes storylines in which they have like this great rise to riches, um, usually sleeping their way to the top. Um, or, um, or play mothers whose um, class status is ennobled by either their work, like in Mildred Pierce, or in this case, um, their sacrifice. So I do think even though the Barbara Stanwyck character in Stella Dallas, and this was, you know, written by um, Olive Higgins Prouty, who 
um, also wrote the novel for now Voyager and some of the big women's pictures. And Stella Dallas was made as a film already in the twenties, but would become a really long running radio um, serial. Mm. Um, that kind of identification with that um, that struggle um, to have to have her desire, like to be who she wants to be, like she wants to be a good time girl. And she doesn't really like <laughs> um, bourgeois propriety. In some ways, she holds on to that, even though it means, you know, she can't keep Laurel. So I think there is a, that there are powerful um, echoes of uh, social realities and of kind of American um, ideas about class that, yeah, I'm not thinking of a star that has that quite um, in the same way at the moment. Maybe you can think of one, but celebrity is so um, uh, different and yeah, well, and I also think as a society, we like we think about class differently and we try to hide it. And I over the I'd say the last couple of years, there's been a much bigger conversation about um who owns all the wealth and like the the sort of tech moguls that have taken over. But there's a whole stretch, I'd say, like mm -hmm. between between Reagan and like the mid two thousands where it's just we don't talk about class and we don't acknowledge it. And there's the whole kind of like, you know, we we the bootstraps mentality of like just <clears throat> you're only poor because you're not working hard enough and um and and all that. And really, you know, in the middle of that, there was like Occupy and everything. But I think for the mm -hmm. most part, as a society and media, we really pushed away from discussions of class. Um and and our media and and we've seen that like in the media that there's just no conversation about it. And, you know, it's kind of the joke about how New York city um, apartments are enormous. And we all, we all look at those shows mm. and we're like, that's not real. You don't work at the diner and live in that apartment. And, you know, like part of it is because of um, constraints of filming and like size of like mm. equipment in a room. But, but I think there's a bigger, a bigger issue about the fact that we have erased conversations of class or the Republicans and the conservatives have created um, a mythology around um, how working class folks can aspire to greatness and so therefore vote for and support all of these wealthy people because that could be you one day, right? Um, and so that's erased genuine, sincere conversations. I think also there's the rise of the middle class is another part of this conversation too of like the erasure of discussion of class as everyone was sort of trying to get into this sort of sweet spot, but whatever that's. I think a lot thing. of the Hollywood <laughs> mythology of the studio system really helped to do that. You know, this kind of fantasy of a classless, you know, accentless, uh, colorless <laughs> middle America um, yeah. where you, you could and talk about, you'd talk about relationships and love affairs instead of, you know, like class divides. And I would say this is part of why when Roseanne, I know Roseanne's a huge, massive, horrible person now, but when Roseanne came out in the late 80s, early 90s, um, was a huge deal because you we weren't talking about class that explicitly in right. television. We weren't talking about women and like poor women and like mothers and and in a way that was sympathetic to them, right? Sorry, well, you know, an example I thought of. 
the person that I have been thinking of since we started talking, having this part of the conversation is, of all people, Julia Roberts. But in Mystic Pizza, Pretty Woman and Erin Brockovich, she is this uh, unbelievably gorgeous woman who is working class or a sex worker on the street. You know, like that is kind of maybe what her beginnings of being America's sweetheart was. And then a few years later to play basically movie star Julia Roberts in like Notting Hill and um, the Oceans movies, you know, I feel like is sort of an acknowledgement of like, we know she's a she's a big Hollywood star. Like, it's cute that we said she was this woman for a while. And that that's, I think, how Hollywood kind of brushes over it is like they'll they'll put Charlize Theron in a movie that a few decades prior, it might have been like Sally Field, who was a more relatable kind of person for people to see in Norma Ray. Um and I think about, you know, I think Barbara Stanwyck is is um you can't look away from her. She has this magnetism. But I gather that she was coded as like kind of a plainer faced woman than a lot of the other stars. You know, Marlena Dietrich is this exotic beauty from Germany and there's like I, the f- I actually looked up um, yeah. because I because so I I haven't seen any I don't think I've seen any other Marlena Dietrich or Barbara Stanwyck films and I I actually googled like headshots of Barbara Stanwyck because I'm like isn't she supposed to be beautiful <laughs> like she just doesn't in this movie doesn't have that sort of glamorous look and and in the photos I looked up I'm like oh yeah that looks like the the you know uh, glitzy glamoury whatever but um, she doesn't have the same she doesn't have the same like unreal look that we think of of as celebrity at this time, right? No, and I think that's super important um, with Stan with Stanwyck. I mean, even her voice. So you know, you mentioned um, Kat um, uh, the screwball comedies that maybe we think of more as the '30s, and Stanwyck was fantastic in screwball comedies, um, but she played like a card shark um, or um, a cabaret girl in Ball of Fire. And I think that her kind of versatility in taking these and then she also was in one of the notorious, you know, um, sleeping her way to the top movies um, of the early 30s, Babyface, where I think. I think that's one where she like literally sleeps way to the top. Like there's a scene where you see her going up on every floor of this building <laughs> oh my to, God. to reach the penthouse. Um, so for one thing, there was that she was um, a star that people identified with, and there's no um, there's no arguing that Stella Dallas is a woman's picture for a female audience to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that combination of her actual class background, her, um, her force of personality over kind of, you know, artifice in terms of the, the um, constructed appearance. Um, And yeah, these thirties narratives where you just needed chutzpah, um, you know, make her a really progressive star. Uh, The other um, you know, stars of the period, like talk about class, like Catherine Hepburn um, was, you know, benefiting a little bit from the sort of sexual um, 
ambiguity. She plays kind of butch characters in certain um, in certain roles, um, but she does that at the cost of you know she's not identi- She's definitely an upper class um, patrician um, New England kind of figure. Yeah, I um, would like to say that I get a little bit of trepidation when I have to watch older movies because I'm just I just like have in my mind that they're really boring and stuffy and slow and hard to get through. And so I like I, you know, I sort of waited to the last minute to watch these and they're they're actually really good. <laughs> like they're they're fun and interesting and their their pacing isn't as excruciating as I think that some older films can be or that we think of as um sometimes think of as as old movies, quote unquote. Um so I, you know, if this conversation was interesting to you, I encourage you to watch both of these films. I think Blonde Venus is far more, uh, I mean, Marlena Dietrich and her outfits are just <laughs> so captivating, uh, but they're both really interesting. Um, Blonde Venus was a little bit harder to find, but I did find a link on Internet Archive that was available to stream for free. So um, I would check that out. And then I think Stella Dallas was on Amazon Prime at the time of this recording. So Um, Yeah, I encourage you all to check out these films and learn more about Hollywood history. Patricia, thank you so much for joining us. This was amazing. Thank you. Uh, Is there anything you want to plug? Are you on social media? You got anything you working on that you want to share? Um, I think that um, I would probably just say check out the British film Institute's BFI classics, um, which are more and more broadly defined what a classic is. So I was able to write um, one on Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca, which is 1940, so just barely didn't make it to today's <laughs> today's discussion. But there's so many um, really richly illustrated um, and uh, gossipy, as well as uh, analytically um, revealing books in that series nice sounds awesome all right y'all thanks so much for listening to feminist frequency radio our show is engineered by rob para carrie stimson provides technical support artwork by jamie varon and our intro music is by phil circus thanks for listening thanks <laughs>